I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the bioacoustician and musician Bernie Krauss, who has recorded more than 5,000 hours of natural habitats around the world over the past five decades, including at least 15,000 wild species. Bernie is the author of the new book, The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World, and his exhibition, The Great Animal Orchestra, previously on view at the Cartier Foundation in Paris, opens on November 20th at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. There's no one in the world quite like Bernie. His understanding of nature through sound is a perspective we all could and should be hearing from at this particular moment in history. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Bernie. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Thank you, Spencer. I'm happy to be anywhere. (laughs) Well, we wanted to begin with a a sort of simple but broad question. What is on the top of your mind these days? Oh, boy. I mean, there's so much noise out there in the environment. But one of the things that strikes me as we're approaching this climate meeting in Scotland coming up at the end of the month is the incredible panic that I feel coming from the main voices that have been speaking up about this issue, you know, for mm. the last several decades. It includes people like uh, Jane Goodall and E.O. Wilson, Robin Kimmer, or Bill McKibben, Camille Dungy, you know, and even, even those ghost voices that are coming from, you know, beyond now, like Ed Abbey and Mary Oliver, uh, Alda Leopold and, and Rachel Carson. All of these people seem to have lent their pleas and admonition to this issue you know, always with a measure of hope. But I get the strong impression, particularly in the last weeks, from the voices that remain, that that hope is pretty much exhausted. Mm. And as Greta Thunberg warns, without concrete and collective action right now, uh, the outcome doesn't look beautiful. And by action, perhaps we need to embrace contradictions like the one that I mentioned In my book, uh, The Power of Tranquility in a Very Noisy World, it just came out. Mm. And it it posits the idea that it's not what we do that might make a difference. It's probably more along the lines of what we choose not to do. Mm. So you've created this entirely new field called soundscape ecology, which is really why we're here with you today. We want to talk to you about this. And along the way, you've developed these terms for certain things uh, you do, geophony, biophony. Could you speak to how you've constructed this field from scratch, more or less, and and developed these particular terms? Well, I came from music, and uh, my background certainly is in music, and as a professional musician uh, with my late music partner, Paul Beaver, um, we introduced the synthesizer pop music and film in the mid-60s, and uh, played with a lot of artists and did a lot of films and so on. But that was kind of a footnote to my life. Really what was important and what I got from that at one point while we were doing these recordings was we had an album to do for Warner Brothers in 1968. And uh, the title of the album was called In a Wild Sanctuary. And it was the first album ever to use natural sound as a component of orchestration. And it was also the first album on the theme of ecology. Mm. 
But we didn't know anything about ecology because it was a new word at that point, and uh, we had to figure out and kind of mark our own path there. Paul wasn't really all that interested in it, and so it meant that if we needed sounds for the album, I had to go out and record them. And it turns out that just at that time, the technology had changed, and stereo recorder, portable recorders were introduced at the professional level. At just about that time, 1968, 1969, and we happened to snag one of them, and often to the forest, uh, what I call the forest then, I thought it was pretty wild. It was just a park, a small park north of San Francisco <laughs> called Muir Woods. And uh, I turned on that recorder, had my new earphones on, and had my stereo mics placed just right. And boy, that soundscape opened up in a way that I'd never heard before. And it struck me as being such an important moment in my life that I just dropped everything and decided right then and there I was going to go into the field of recording natural sounds just because it made me feel good. Mm. And so um, in 1979, 10 years later, uh, after working on Apocalypse Now, I dropped everything. Paul had died in 75 of um, brain aneurysm. And uh, so the team wasn't working anymore as a team. And I just decided I wanted to be outside more because it made me feel, you know, alive and, and part of the living world around me. So I dropped everything, went back to school, got my PhD in uh, creative arts with an internship in bioacoustics, and I've never looked back. But what happened along the way in, in answer to your question is that what I found was because we're a visual culture, all of the words to describe life around us come from what we see. There's very little from what we hear. So at just about that time, a fellow, a Canadian composer by the name of Murray Schaefer, who was not only a great composer but a great naturalist who just died this year, came up with the term soundscape in his 1977 book called Tuning of the World, which, by the way, for your listeners, if you're interested in sound, this is the key book of the 20th century to read. It reads like a great novel. Mm. And, and you got to check it out because it's really impressive. Anyway, he came up with the term soundscape. And by soundscape, he meant all of the sound that reaches our ears from whatever source. The problem is he didn't define the sources. And so as I became more and more involved in this, I was listening to the natural world as a composer. So I was listening to the collective sounds that all of the animals, organisms were making in a given habitat. The problem is they didn't have, there was no definition there. Mm. So what are the sounds that these animals are making? How do you classify that? What does it mean, the collective sound of all of the animals in a given habitat vocalizing at the same time? So. I came up with the idea of the biophony, bio meaning life, the Greek prefix for life, and phone, P-H-O-N, the suffix for sound. So biophony is the natural outcome of that. And then working with a colleague by the name of Stuart Gage from Michigan State University, we came up with, uh, during a study that we were doing in the national parks in 2001, we came up with the term geophony, 
which was the first sounds ever heard on Earth. And those are the sounds of water and waves and, you know, uh, natural sounds that are non-biological and that come from the wild. We came up with a geophony term. And they've been around for, gee, four and a half billion years now. There's nothing to hear them till the animals came along, and that was the biophony. And then finally, there's us. But we have added our sound print to uh, the world for a very, very short period of time, you know, a few million years. And that is the anthropophony, anthropo meaning earth, like anthropology and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, so we, we had all of the classes of sound. Those are all of mm. the sources. And anthropophony is divided into two subclasses, actually. There's controlled sound, like music and theater and language. And the other source is that which is incoherent or chaotic, what I call noise. And what I based this new book on, The Power of Tranquility, is based on what we generate as humans and how it affects us in the natural world. Mm. So you've now collected 5,000 hours of audio over five decades. What are some of the ways in which you're thinking about organizing and processing all of these recordings? Well, it's being used in any number of different ways. It's being used in research because a lot of these habitats, over, well over 50% of them now, are gone. I mean, they're virtually extinct. We're talking about I mean, most people are talking about individual animals that are disappearing two or three or four a day. I'm talking about whole habitats that are disappearing two or three or four a day. And imagine how many critters are in each one of those habitats and multiply that out. And it's pretty extraordinary. The, the, the impact is pretty great. What we're doing with that, some of it is used to study the effects of human endeavor on the planet because it's always expressed through the narrative of the natural world, its voice. What's interesting is, is that most schools in the U.S. that teach life sciences haven't figured that out yet and haven't figured out how to make that a part of these courses that they're teaching in, in biological sciences, certainly. But it's coming around a little bit. The other thing that I do is create works of art with this material. It's used in music albums, uh, certainly Cosmo Sheldrake, one of, a, a British musician, is using a lot of this material and is creating a lot of material himself from his own recordings uh, that he's using in his songs and compositions. There are other people who are using these things for, I, I mean, I license a lot of this material for film. Mm -hmm. For instance, Jane Goodall was just doing a film on her life called Jane. And these were films that were taken in the 1960s. But the 16 and 8 millimeter films that were shot then didn't include sound. And so luckily, I had sound from Gombe that I'd recorded in the late 80s and early 90s that they could use in that film because they were the only recordings of that habitat that had been made in mm. surround audio, which is what they needed to have when they were producing this film a couple of years ago. So I, had the, I luckily had that material. A lot of it is used for installations in museums and aquaria and zoos. And we've got a piece coming up right now at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem 
which opens November 20th, which is called The Great Animal Orchestra, based on my book uh, of 2012 of that title. And that is uh, an expression of seven habitats that are under great threat and stress now, again, because of human endeavor. Speaking of the Great Animal Orchestra, you opened at the Cartier Foundation in Paris, and more than a million people experienced it. That's amazing. Why has this drawn so much interest from the public? And in many ways, there's a second part of the question, which is, where's that disconnect with our own individual interest with the planet, but our disconnect from uh, the crisis at hand and what to do about it? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. And, you know, we could go on for a month <laughs> and talk about this without, without reaching any kind of conclusion. But we don't really care that much about what's going on. We are distracted by so much noise around us, by our media, by all of the other impediments that stand in our way of, of really clear, forceful action and telling people to stop the bullshit. Yeah. It's just endless. It's just endless. And I'm 83 years old now. I had hope, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that things were going to change. And I put all my energies into that. It hasn't changed, not one bit. And as a matter of fact, since 1989, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, when, uh, you know, the corporate world kind of coalesced, the unions disappeared, and the representation of people who are really impacted by all of this you know, resource extraction and stuff like that, they no longer had any power. And being powerless, uh, things didn't change. As a matter of fact, they got worse. Hmm. When we think back to, you know, you speak about 68, 69, San Francisco, you're coming out of an extraordinary foundational tradition. This is the Whole Earth Catalogs happening the Grateful Dead. This is this is a period where there's great social change and a sort of return to the land movement. And over this period where you've been in and around that area, how do you think the changes there have negatively affected the climate? Or, you know, how did it go from this incredible dream of a future to where we are now, even though that's a center of great power in the world? Well, Andrew, it, for one thing, it was the illusion of social change that you're talking about. I never believed it for a second because really at the core of it, the social change you're talking about was mostly young white kids, you know, who had resources, who were making the claims of this destruction that they didn't know anything about, who were talking about a war that was thousands of miles away from them that they only saw on television and, and fighting it. I mean, it was a good fight, but the illusion was always, there wasn't much depth to it. There was a lot of breadth to it, but there wasn't a mm. lot of depth. Mm. That is really key to what's going on now because, of course, the corporate world latched right onto that, the ways that kids dressed, you know, what they were smoking, how they were smoking, uh, you know, what they were thinking, what they were writing about, and all of the self-help stuff that started to happen then and the changes with sexual identity and stuff. It didn't mean a thing because nothing really, really changed. Yeah. We got a former president who, who, who still talks about, you know, I'm sure amongst his friends, grabbing pussy. This stuff 
has now got to stop. You have to listen to people like Greta Thunberg, who are so focused on what these issues are and what the most important issue is right now, which is climate. Mm. Nothing else is going to matter if we can't breathe. Exactly. But the work you're doing is providing a possibility for people to have a felt experience with this, right? Yeah. So a million people come to your show again, which is just extraordinary. I mean, these are, yeah. that is huge numbers yeah. for a show about the sounds of our planet. What do you think that says about a kind of primordial attachment we have to this? Is there something there that we we can't deny? Yeah, for instance, these sounds are proto-orchestras these biophonies aren't culturally biased. That's number one. Mm. So the people that are drawn to these exhibits to see them, the visitors that come can be six or seven years old, 70 or 80 years old. They can come from any culture, whether it's Asia or Africa or uh, Germany, and see it and get the same kind of hit out of it that everybody else does because there's really no baggage that carries along with music and the rest of the stuff. Well, you know, is it is it representative enough? Is it European enough? Is it American enough? Is it jazz enough? You know, all of these definitions. Luckily, the stuff is brand new and it hasn't got a lot of definition to it yet, which is what's so great about it. Mm. And so people are drawn to it because they want to be empowered and it helps empower them because it makes them feel good. Listening to these sounds engages them. And we only have, they're the soundscapes that I've created, seven of them from different environments around the world, but also there's a streaming spectrogram, which is a graphic illustration of sound. We can now show sound as a graphic. We couldn't really do that before, but with the Cartier exhibit and the folks at United Visual Artists in the UK who actually put the visual component together, you get a cohesive structure and things that people can relate to. And I swear, man, they sit there on the floor, these kids who normally would be poking each other in the ribs and, and laughing and looking at their cell phone, they sit on the floor quietly for 90 minutes without joking around and screwing around with each other. And they watch this stuff quietly. There's no exchange except what's going on on the screen and coming out of the speakers. And that's really amazing. And Cartier put a lot of money into this and a lot of investment and a big risk. It took a big risk because this was the first kind of thing like that that they'd ever done. But they're showing it all over the place now. And now it gets its finally, finally, it gets its premiere here in the U.S. in Salem. Hey, everyone, just taking a quick break to tell you about our new At A Distance book. It's our first book. We published it with our friends at Apartamento, and it features a curated selection of the interviews from this program over the past year and a half. It's condensed, edited, and distilled. It's a great collection of the best thinking shared by our guests presented in digestible, short-form narratives. The book provides a hopeful, optimistic guide for today and tomorrow in a gorgeous, flexi-bound volume. We're really excited about this. You can order your copy at slowdown.tv backslash at a distance book or through Apartamento and select booksellers. Before we go uh, too far forward, I, I just wanted to talk a bit about the shift you had early on, which is 
there's some inherent paradox, at least on the surface, of having introduced the world to the synthesizer in many ways and, and really pushed what we could maybe call unnatural sound, right? Synthetic sound. Yeah. And then an absolute 180 to natural sound. So for you, how do you um, sort of reconcile the difference in the feeling in our, in our human response to natural sound and synthesized sound? What I found is a synthesized sound didn't do anything for me except boost my ego <laughs> and, uh, and my bank account because we made a lot of money during that period because most of the musicians couldn't play it. They were too stoned, those that had it, and they couldn't play the instrument, and so it was left to us to f fill time for them in the studio. Um, and I got really bored with that after a while. And finally, after Apocalypse Now, the, the transition was very easy for me. And mostly, the thing that got me about the natural soundscapes is that it made me feel better. I've got a terrible case of ADHD, which I've had since I was a kid. And the only thing that stems the anxiety and the stress and the feeling of, I've got to do something and I've got to go somewhere really quickly, is listening to natural sounds. And the other thing about it is that recording them in the field, you have to be quiet. And you have to stand there and be close to your equipment for long periods of time and shut the hell up and stop scratching and, and beating at, at mosquitoes and stuff like that. You got to be quiet. And when I first went out there, I'm listening to my archive and listening to the recordings that I made. The recordings that I made early on, I could be quiet for 30 seconds or a minute. You know, those were in the tape days. And little by little, I could go the length of a seven-inch reel. It was like 22 minutes at 15 inches per second. And then, damn it, digital came along. And I was really in trouble. I mean, I had, I had these, this dad recorder that could go where a, a reel of tape could go for two hours. And I had to sit there for two hours while this thing was rolling around, you know, until <laughs> either the battery died or I ran out of tape. And finally, when we had a hard drive and the uh, cards... I actually sat there one time for 32 hours. Wow. I could never, I, well, I, I took bathroom breaks, but you know, I, it was 32 hour long recording session. It's like a heavy dose of Ritalin. Yeah. <laughs> but I took, I was able to do it drugless, man. And, and, and you did this, you know, you sort of nonchalantly say apocalypse now. I mean, at the time, it was one of the most extraordinary productions out there, the lore around it, a huge film, Vietnam War, everything. And you take this complete pivot. You could have probably done the next biggest whatever film. I, I, I got a question for you, though. I got yeah. fired eight times on Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Each time, uh, hey, look, Spencer, each time I got hired back, I got double the amount of money. Figure that out. It worked really well. But that wasn't the reason that I was doing this stuff. I was doing stuff because I wanted to do it and I liked it. Right. I got really, really tired of the kind of games and shit that was going on in, uh, in Hollywood. I didn't yeah. want to be part of that anymore. It wasn't yeah. exciting to me. I got no gratification from it. But when I went on to the wild, I felt good. Mm -hmm. So what's the choice? Right. And I figured out a way to uh, sell this material and make art out of it 
uh, for museums and aquaria like the Smithsonian or Natural History in New York. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to ask you about your project early on with the California Academy of Sciences, where you did a soundscape for an African waterhole exhibition and discovered what you've called and referred to earlier as a proto-orchestra. So what, what did this kind of grouping of birds, insects, animals, wildlife reveal about that environment and just about the work you were pursuing? Well, I, I finished my PhD in 1981, and then I had to figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life, you know, recording animals. How was I going to sell that? How was I going to, you know, make a living with it, pay the rent, eat? Uh, and just about that time, there was a fellow at the California Academy of Sciences who was part of the design department who invited me to go to Africa uh, to record natural sounds for their African waterhole exhibit. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. There wasn't any money in it, but I certainly jumped at the opportunity and went to Africa, spent several weeks there. Uh, recording these natural sounds. And one night I was in my tent with my microphone outside, with my earphones on, and I was listening to these beautiful soundscapes that occur only in Africa at night with the hyenas echoing in the background and doing their whoops, whoops, whoops and with, with um, great echo. And I was recording these sounds and I was sitting there thinking about it and it struck me that they were singing in relationship to one another, just like instruments in an orchestra. The insects in, in one niche, a frequency niche, the birds in another, the mammals and so on in another mostly. And so when I came back to California and I looked at uh, primitive spectrograms, sure enough, all of these things aligned just like I was hearing them. And I took them, of course, to the head of birds and mammals where I was, I was working under that department at the time as a field associate. And I took them to the head at that time and I said, look at these patterns that are kind of indicative of what's going on in the natural world where these animals are all vocalizing, looks like, together. And the guy said, no, 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 no. We're, we're, we're going to take our parabolic dishes out there and we're going to record birds individually and we're going to catalog them and make these great collections, which is the standard, has been that mm -hmm. for over 100 years now in many of the institutional collections. And I just insisted on continuing along the path of um, recording, collecting whole habitats like I'd heard in Africa, because that was the way I heard the world. I heard it as a collective expression, not as individual sounds. And I also, I named it the niche hypothesis, the acoustic niche hypothesis, have published in that. And it's the basis for environmental recording right now. Mm. In more recent years, have, have you returned to sites that you went to early on? And have you found any of these biophonies or geophonies to be revitalized? Is there any hope for sound or, or is it really that you know, humans and industrial sounds are completely taking over and dwindling the biophonies and geophonies everywhere? The answer is yes to both. There are a few places, like in Costa Rica, where they've rewilded a couple of habitats. Uh, it's going to take a long time before the uh, animal wildlife repopulates those areas. But at mm. least in terms of vegetation and the way that they're doing it, it seems to 
be making some sense. But for the most part, the way people are trying to rewild is they're, they're doing these kind of monoculture forests, you know, with the same type of tree planted in rows and stuff like that. It isn't going to work. And we'll have to see what happens with the California fires and how the habitats there, particularly in the Sierras, are going to come back. Mm-hmm. It won't happen in my lifetime, but it'll certainly happen to some degree, and we'll see what, we'll see what goes. You mentioned the wildfires and, and everything we've obviously been, been seeing in the last few years, which is tragic. And you've written about your own personal tragedy that you and your wife, Kat, experienced through 2017 wildfires. Despite this kind of unimaginable loss that I can't, I, I really can't even imagine what you guys went through. Have you found anything sort of useful from that experience? Any silver lining? Has there been anything positive coming out of it? You know, the the positive person in our relationship is Catherine. <laughs> and I think Kat ought to weigh in on this. I definitely think that that so many good people are working really hard to help protect biodiversity, to help raise awareness about our environmental conditions, to help see that laws protecting our water, our air, our our food are are pushed forward. But we aren't winning the war here yet. We're, we're winning small battles, but we're losing the war and we need a lot more effort, a lot more change, a lot more decision on the part of the public to say, what can I personally do in order to see that there are, uh, if you will, more wildflowers and less wildfires. Mm. The idea of having a simpler life and valuing things that are actually life-sustaining to us, relationships, communities, our intimate lives, and supporting that and beginning to turn our backs on some of the spectacle that draws us so much to it, the consumerism, the dialogue, the technology, if you will. There's a lot to be good in that, but it really takes discernment on the part of the public, especially now, to say, what do I accept here? And how much is crossing the line and is actually not in our best interests to support? And so if there's a positive, for example, in what happened with us in the wildfires is that it taught me a really valuable lesson about the fact that everything is combustible and all the things that we put meaning in uh, pale in comparison to the people we love, the animals we care for, the food, water, and air that sustain us. Mm. That, that becomes really clear when you, when you feel global warming actually bearing down on your own front porch and it shouldn't take that experience for everyone to be able to reach that enlightenment i mean we thought we were very well versed in in for example fires we've grown up in the west we know about them in environmental conditions in being um, mindful about where we are in the world when these natural forces decide to act uh you feel very small in comparison. Mm. So it's best if we, I think, simply keep our positivity, keep our 
keep our hope alive and utilize that to help us fuel our action. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kat. I mean, coming from two people who literally lost all physical possessions in the wildfires, um, but miraculously, the archive survived. Amazingly. Amazingly, because of measures you took beforehand. Yeah, but it was mostly a political reaction. Mm. Yeah, because I got the archive copied and offshore in March of 2017, right after Trump got into office. Wow. And the reason that I got it offshore, the reason that I made the copy in the first place was my concern coming largely from people that I was speaking to at NASA and the EPA that their data was going to be compromised. I didn't want my data compromised. They were getting theirs offshore, and I thought to myself, I've got to get mine out of here too And uh, because this country isn't supporting science. And I got my work offshore, and luckily, luckily, I had it at the uh, Fondation Cartier where, you know, we were able to retrieve it. So had Trump not been elected, you very well may have lost a lot of your recordings. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to find the positives there, too. (laughs) (laughs) What's interesting to what Kat was saying and what we have realized only recently in its full force is that we became climate migrants in a matter of minutes. And it happened to us that quickly. When we left Wild Sanctuary, uh, our home of 25 years then, in October 9th, 2017, we left it for the last time. And it was the time that it took us to drive down the, through the fire out the front uh, that changed our lives. Mm. And uh, so, you know, people just have to think about that, how quickly it can happen to them. We're not the only ones. And really how very vital and important it becomes about your own family and friends, pets, the community around you, the way that people are really important in our lives. And and the spectacle will steal that from you. And by the spectacle, I mean everything else that distracts us from just trying to have a reasonable home and a reasonable life and some closeness, real communication closeness with others around us. To value that is to gain something of kinship and of hope really in the world because we we need to be able to support one another to feel for the future, to have faith in the future. Certainly faith in all sorts of ways, is is a strong and powerful thing. When it's combined with science, when it's combined with community, when it's combined with our own personal abilities to be able to put into action what we really care about, take Mm -hmm. the time to to figure that out and then be able to uh, support it or act on it becomes intuitive and intrinsic instead of something that you have to battle toward getting. Mm. And I think that's the thing about quietude and, and Bernie's quest, for example, what he found with his ADHD, you have to allow yourself some silence. You have to look into the biome, into the quiet spaces within yourself, within what you're doing, and be able to say, what's really important here? 
And I think that that enables us to to maybe live a little bit smaller when much of the culture and especially the consumer culture is always pressing us that we have to have bigger, better, different, whatever. Couldn't have said it better myself. Bernie, I did want to finish on the subject of the future and of hope and of just thinking about how your work is being carried on by a new generation. You mentioned Cosmo Sheldrake earlier, whose brother Merlin actually has been on this program. Does this give you a sense of hope for the future, this this awareness and interest around what you've done and how young people today are applying it to their own work? Is there anything based on what you've learned that gives you hope for the future? Oh, sure. I I love what uh, people like Cosmo are doing, but also there are a whole bunch of other folks who are doing stuff too. I'm working with a a fellow in the UK who I composed that symphony with, the Great Animal Orchestra Symphony. I just think that there are whole groups of people who are beginning to coalesce around this important issue with the help of people like Greta Thunberg. And I think it's really important to kind of focus on turning our, our desires, our dreams, and hopes for the future on people who are actually creating the future now. I'm 83 years old, so my future is, <laughs> is limited. But for those who are still around, who are still young, you know, it's really important to get involved and to see what, what they can do. Bernie and Kat, thank you so much for joining us today. It was really nice to have you on and really inspired by the work and and can't wait to go see the exhibition at the Peabody. Thank you. Look forward to seeing you there. I hope you come up when it opens. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.